Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. This is the second episode where we will discuss healthcare delivery in Africa. In the previous episode, the entrepreneur and regulatory advisor, Hervé Mwamba, talked about stereotypes and medical device regulation in Africa. Having traveled a little bit in Africa, and I've had the chance to speak to some regulators in Africa, especially in Tanzania, for example. And one of the stereotypes is that South Africa is the best African market. So if you want to expand into the African market, then South Africa is the best place to go. It's ironic because us here in South Africa are complaining that the system is not good enough, but the rest of Africa is saying, oh no, but you guys have a really good system. I guess that's one stereotype. Another stereotype is that there's not a lot of buying power from the consumer. And when I say consumer, I don't mean like people like you and me, hospitals and healthcare practitioners, but there's a lot of donations. And maybe that's not even a stereotype, but because financially... Most countries are not at that level. They get a lot of products dumped at them, second-rate products even. Like when you, were, when you were younger and you had some clothes and when they don't fit you, you give them to your, <laughs> to your little ones. That's what it seems like to me. We just get these old equipments or these second-rate equipments because we need them, but they actually aren't good for us. Today, you're going to hear about an effort to manage non-communicable diseases in Africa better. Medtronic Labs is a non-profit organization that works with governments and local communities across Africa to create local ecosystems for the management of hypertension and diabetes. I spoke with Anne Stake, Chief Strategy and Product Officer at Medtronic Labs, who explained how Medtronic Labs approached the African market, gaining trust in the local communities, and what challenges and innovation they observe on the ground in Kenya, Rwanda and Ghana. Enjoy the show and do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. And if you will like the content, say thanks by leaving a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. It's published on a monthly basis. That's right just once every four to five weeks, so you won't get spammed by our messages. Find the link to the previous newsletter in the show notes. Now let's dive in today's discussion with Anne Stake. Okay, perfect. Okay, good. Um, so maybe just as an introduction... Where does your love or interest for Africa come from? You've been present there in various roles for 10 years now as a health financing advisor in Rwanda. Then you founded a diagnostic center also in Rwanda. And then you started working with Medtronic. So now your role is the chief strategy and product officer. Tell me more. I guess my, my interest for Africa started in college, actually. So when I was a freshman at Stanford, we had to read three books. 
And one of the books was the book about Paul Farmer called Mountains Beyond Mountains. And that really sparked my first love for global health, reading about the work that Paul Farmer did in Haiti and Rwanda and other countries setting up partners in health. And that approach was really inspiring. And all throughout my college years, I focused on on global health. And then eventually junior year of Stanford got to go to Rwanda. That kind of led to future roles in Rwanda, although I spent a lot of time in Asia as well, in Cambodia and India and other places. In essence, you know Rwanda quite well, and maybe we can touch upon that a little bit later, because Medtronic Labs is actually not present there, if I'm not mistaken. You're present in Kenya, Ghana, India, Bhutan, the Philippines and Cambodia, but not Rwanda. How come? Actually, we are present in Rwanda We just launched a program in partnership with the Ministry of Health and the Rwanda Biomedical Center with grant funding from the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation. So we're working with the Rwandan government to implement and digitize their non-communicable disease strategy. We had one of our first validation workshops with the Ministry of Health and with the Rwanda Biomedical Center and other stakeholders to map out all of the specifications for what the digital health platform for the country will look like. So, yeah, we are. So, in essence, we shared the breaking news. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just before we continue, let's clarify a little bit uh, what Medtronic Labs is. So Medtronic is a globally recognized corporation, but Medtronic Labs is actually a non-profit that started off inside Medtronic. Can you take us through the decision-making process to start Medtronic Labs and to go to Africa as the first point for the public health projects? Medtronic Labs has been over a decade-long journey at Medtronic, started by the former CEO Omar Ishraq. And essentially, back in 2011 or 12, he challenged all of the businesses at Medtronic to figure out how to expand access to healthcare for underserved populations. Typically, Medtronic medical devices only reach the top 1% in the countries in emerging markets. And so many different initiatives grew out of that first challenge. But one of the key learnings from that early phase is that actually doesn't make very much sense to house global health efforts or efforts focused on underserved populations within business units because of the traditional pressures and the PNL pressures that exist. So we spun out a lot of those different initiatives that were successful into a separate entity called Medtronic Labs. And after a few various shifts on the journey Now, Medtronic Labs is a separate 501c3 organization with a public benefit corporation as well. So not to get into the legal structure too much, but essentially now we operate as an independent nonprofit organization still with dedicated funding from Medtronic, but it's a separate nonprofit initiative and really the signature and umbrella global health effort for Medtronic, the organization. And given that you're a non-profit, is the dedicated funding that you get uh, from Medtronic uh, the only way that you're funded or do you have other sources for funding? We see the Medtronic funding as the core and sustainable funding year after year that really enables us to have a long-term approach to global health. So we don't live and die by the traditional grant cycles, so to speak. So we do have that 
kind of ability to have a long-term approach where we know that our programs will sustain regardless. But the Medtronic funding really goes to most of our overhead, all of our technology developments. We've invested millions of dollars in building the best digital health platform focused on community-based healthcare delivery. And then in terms of the actual program operations on the ground that serves serve patients directly, that's where we seek additional partners and funders. So we have funding, for instance, from the German development organization called GIZ. We have funding from various foundations, from private sector pharma companies, and all of that money, 100% of that money goes towards program operations and ultimately patient outcomes. So there's zero overhead in our model, which we see as a value add for the development sector. And for us, it enables us to, again, have that more sustainable focus from the beginning so that when grant funding dries up, it's not like we immediately exit. We sustain it over time. And eventually the goal for all of our work with governments and with health systems is to transition it to Mm -hmm. those health systems as well. If we try to outline the work that you're doing, everything started off in Kenya. And I want to just give the audience an overview of the healthcare system there. According to the World Health data from 2018, Kenya currently spends around 4.6% of its GDP on healthcare, according to various sources, basic government-funded public healthcare is provided at the primary healthcare centers and dispensaries. And the interesting part here is that these are usually run by nurses. One of the challenges that many countries in Africa, Kenya included, uh, are plagued with is the issue of low quality and counterfeit medications. So a lot of challenges on the ground. And I want to ask you, what's, what's your experience so far? What have you learned through the work that you've been doing there about the healthcare system as such and what then led to the design of the program that you're leading there? Kenya, Ghana, Rwanda, all of the health systems where we work in Africa. One thing I want to highlight for the audience is that many people maybe living in the US or Europe imagine that there are all of these challenges that the health systems aren't as robust as they are in the quote-unquote developed countries. But one of the key learnings for us is that there is a really robust community health infrastructure that exists. There's a history of community health workers and community health volunteers that are really the underpinning of the health system in these countries. And because there is such a a strong public sector approach in many of these countries, it, it enables us to do more innovative and scalable programs that would not be possible in the United States, for instance, because of the fragmentation that exists here. That's one one thing to mention, this kind of robustness of the community health system. Of course, there's lots of issues as well with goals to professionalize the community health workforce, make sure that they're paid and compensated for the work that they do, but they do exist. And it's something that is key to the models that we design and implement. We really work with the community health infrastructure and link the community health care delivery through community health workers and volunteers to health systems and then up into like national level reporting so that all of the data flows and then is directing patient 
care. Yeah, that's the key thing that I would highlight. Of course, there's so many challenges with supply chain with, as you were mentioning, counterfeit medication. But in terms of the positives and what the health systems enable, I think this kind of single payer health system with a robust community health care delivery sets many of the countries that we're working in apart and gives them an advantage, perhaps, in, in terms of what could be possible in the long term. One of the things that Medtronic Labs prides itself in is the engagement of the local community. So really working with the local people. And I wonder, how do you gain their trust? And how do you uh, form the partnerships that you have in Kenya? More specifically, you're actually working with the Ministry of Health and local governments for the hypertension and diabetes program. So Tell us more about that program and the whole collaboration, how it began, how it's currently working. Yeah, absolutely. So at Medtronic Labs, it's really important to us to partner at every single level, all the way from the village and the community up to the county level governments and then up to the national level governments as well. And then surrounding that with all of the existing partners in the global health ecosystem. So the way the partnership in Kenya and for the audience, we have a large public-private partnership between Medtronic Labs and the Ministry of Health with funding from many different partners, but essentially to scale our digital health-enabled program for hypertension and diabetes across the entire country. And the way that came about was really just with a small program in one county. So we got funding from Novartis a few years ago and had good relationships with the county government. We had good relationships that we formed with the facilities and all of the doctors at the various facilities that we were working in. So the hospitals and the health center. And it really started from this kind of grassroots approach where we started screening patients for hypertension and diabetes, referring them into the health center. And then we slowly iterated upon that model to become what we are today as we grew, but making sure that all of the stakeholders at every level are aligned takes a lot of work and community engagement. So most of the staff at Medtronic Labs are from the counties where we work and also work in those counties. And all of the community health workers that are part of the government system are directly from the villages where they work as well. So there's this inherent trust built in. And then as we start engaging in at the community level, we work with kind of trusted community-based organizations, whether that's a church or a village leader or whatever current infrastructure or the ecosystem that already exists. So we plug into that. Could you compare how the chronic care management looked like before or how does it still look like in the counties that you're not present in? And what are the clinical outcomes of the programs that you provide? In many of the countries where we work, the health systems, similar to everywhere in the world, have been set up for acute care. Really good at managing acute conditions when there's an emergency, you go into the hospital and get and get care, but not equipped or designed for longitudinal management of a condition. In Africa in particular, there have been a lot of programs and a lot of funding dedicated to HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria. So you also have a strong infrastructure that's built up for those particular conditions, but not a lot 
of funding or focus has been on non-communicable diseases like hypertension and diabetes. But at the same time, all of these countries are going through an epidemiological transition to non-communicable diseases. So 70% of mortality in the countries where we work, morbidity and mortality are due to non-communicable diseases, but only 1% of global health spending is focused on non-communicable diseases. So that's where we really saw this this opening to transform care delivery for chronic disease. Before we started, there really wasn't any infrastructure. So a patient would have to go to a district hospital or a, a hospital that could be four or five hours away just to get a simple blood pressure check because there weren't even blood pressure monitors available at the healthcare centers. So we had a big challenge ahead of us. We had to make sure that equipment and training and resources were moved from the district hospitals down to the community and health center level of the health system. And then we had to set up a way to make sure that patients, once they got screened and diagnosed with hypertension and diabetes, were then followed up with in the community so that we could actually manage those conditions because it's not a one-time intervention in these cases. It's a lifetime of monitoring and medication that's required to get patients controlled for hypertension and diabetes. And of course, the value of all of this is that in the long term, you reduce complications and costs for the health system. So that's really really what we've been trying to do and what the system and what the program is designed around. Is the focus the same in Ghana on hypertension and diabetes? Yes. So right now, the focus in Ghana is the same. We're focused on hypertension and diabetes in all of the countries where we work. But we are expanding because as we have been successful in managing and running the programs for hypertension and diabetes, we've gotten a lot of interest in the model that we're setting up, which is all kind of data-driven and focused on longitudinal management. We've got a lot of interest from other disease areas as well. So now we're looking at it as less of a hypertension and diabetes program, but as a comprehensive primary care solution for any sort of disease area that requires follow-ups. So we've been looking at malaria, tuberculosis, HIV. We're launching mental health very soon. We have that built in to the application already. So like a suite of uh, different areas that we're looking at. And right now we have about, we have over 100,000 patients that we're managing. So it's the largest program for hypertension and diabetes that's focused on that longitudinal management on the continent. So that 100,000, that's in Ghana and Kenya combined. Yes, that's, I think it's 130,000 that we're managing. That's in our country across Africa, Rwanda, Tanzania, Sierra Leone, Ghana, and Kenya, with the largest coming out of Kenya and Ghana. And um, what kind of differences do you see among the markets? I mentioned earlier that speaking more broadly, Kenya attributes 4.6% of its GDP to healthcare. Ghana just attributes 1% less. So Ghana spends 3.5% of its GDP on healthcare. And if you look at the life expectancy in Kenya, it's 67 years. In Ghana, it's three years less. So 64 years at birth. And also looking at the partners that you're working with, 
with they're different. So in Ghana, it's the Christian Health Association and Novartis Global Health. And in Kenya, it's actually the Ministry of Health. Do you observe any differences? I mean, we too often look at Africa as one country and forget that it's a very diverse continent with many different countries and different uh, situations and cultures and languages. Yeah, as you rightly said, it's a continent with many countries. So we don't see it as just one program that we deploy for every single country. We actually have a lot of customization that we build into all of our programs. So we work with the partners on the ground to design the right intervention. We change all of the languages, all of the metrics in the application. So that's all customized by region. And we also have different clinical algorithms by region. So we use one of the algorithms, for example, is the World Health Organization Hearts algorithm, and that's customized by region. So Ghana has a different algorithm than Kenya, for example. And I think the other thing to mention, since we are talking about digital health, since our interventions are tech-enabled, is that every country is on a different stage in their digital health ecosystem journey. To compare and contrast, one example, Rwanda has decided that they want to use a set of global goods and standardize the the set of tools in that country. So in Rwanda, we actually aren't even deploying our specific digital health solution, but helping Rwanda build on the open source tool that they've already chosen. But our team of developers are building directly into that system and scaling it across the entire country. Where in Kenya, since we were there from the beginning and have been using our Spice platform, that's been the platform that's been chosen for the entire for the entire country. We're at different stages of development. Kenya is a little bit more advanced, so they're probably more ready for a more advanced tool. Other countries are just introducing their very first digital health product, so perhaps are less advanced along that journey. So we're seeing lots of differences there. And of course, they are different countries. So Sierra Leone is very different from Rwanda and different from Kenya with different histories and cultures. So we always have local teams that we hire in each country. What's the attitude that you see from the people that you reach out to about hypertension and diabetes? Because across Africa, you mentioned earlier how strong the community healthcare is, but what's also very strong is the traditional healers, traditional beliefs, which can differ a lot from the Western medicine in terms of how diseases should be treated and how serious they are. So from that perspective, I'm wondering how do you reach out to people when you screen them to get their trust that the interventions that are offered to them are something that are going to help them? Misinformation about healthcare is something I think that is not unique to Africa, but a global challenge that we've seen, especially during the COVID pandemic. I think it's just amplified all of the misinformation that's out there. So I think we see healthcare is really local and and social. So whenever we're communicating with patients, we make sure that we have people on the ground in the communities that are trained and equipped to deliver messages that patients will ultimately trust. So that's where working with community-based organizations like 
churches and engaging with every level of the health system is really important where we work. And then beyond kind of that local face-to-face engagement, we've put a lot of thought into patient engagement on the technology side as well. So just making sure that we have all of the touch points that a patient might go through mapped out and that we're communicating not too much, but at the right time so that they can continually engage in their care. So we have a range of automated SMSs for patients that remind them of where to go just so that they know. We have educational content that we send out. And then we also have a telecounseling service. So we have people on our team that are nurses and counselors that are trained to follow up with patients that we see falling off in terms of their data. So for instance, if a patient hasn't been returning for their scheduled medical review, or they've been missing patient support groups that we're running, we will directly follow up with them and see if there's anything that they need, make sure that they know that they should be going back to the health center for an appointment and just providing that kind of counseling and social support that might be required, whether it's, can we help you find a ride? What other issues are you facing? So we've been really focused on building that patient engagement part as well as we become bigger and more advanced in the work that we're doing. Are there any findings that you could highlight in terms of what you discovered are the biggest barriers to adherence to treatment, to managing diseases? The biggest barrier, not surprisingly, is cost and particularly cost of of the medications. So at Medtronic Labs, we provide the service delivery model, the tech platform and the implementation alongside health systems, but we're not paying for the medicines, right? So that's, we're working and augmenting existing health systems. But of course, as we've been working with patients and with health systems, when we follow up with patients to understand you had a prescription, why aren't you filling it? The biggest barrier is that medications aren't yet covered. Medications for hypertension and diabetes are quite expensive because there hasn't been a lot of focus or funding on non-communicable diseases, right now they're not included in the national health insurance systems, insurance funds typically. Um, So that's where our future vision on advocacy and a lot of the health system strengthening work that we've been focusing on lies really on how can we make sure that medications are actually affordable and getting to patients. It's not across the board because patients are have been very creative in terms of pooling funding, and there are some funds out there to get medications to patients, but it is still a big barrier and something that we've been working on with our pharma partners as well. So we are we have partnerships with Sanofi, we used to work with Novartis, and we're also working with Novo Nordisk as well on some of their patient access work to try to get patients more affordable treatments. Yeah, if treatment is not available, it's discouraging for patients to even get involved in any programs because they would just remind them that they're not doing something that they can't afford anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Although, I mean, that being said, the you were asking about outcomes before and the outcomes that we've been seeing just by simply identifying patients in the field through screening, referring them into the health system, making sure that they have access to blood pressure and blood glucose monitoring and that we're following up with them 
back in the field through community health workers and with telecounseling, we've seen fantastic outcomes in some of the peer-reviewed studies that we've conducted. One of the studies that we've done shows that out of the cohort, we've improved outcomes for 50% of the patients, which is much higher than some of the leading interventions for hypertension that is out there. So even simple digital health solutions can move the needle on these conditions, despite a lot of the systemic barriers that we're still working on. Going to the tech side of the solution, you mentioned the SPICE platform before. Perhaps we can take time for you to explain a little bit more how it works, how technologically advanced it is. How do you manage data? Do governments require you to submit that data? What's the situation that you're observing in terms of data protection? And also just basic things such as network and connectivity issues that we also see in the world. We just heard this massive fallout that happened in the UK because of a heat wave and data centers weren't prepared for such weather conditions. So what are the infrastructure challenges that you're faced with in this environment and how are you addressing those? Maybe I'll start just explaining what SPICE is and then get into some of the infrastructure and data challenges. So Essentially, SPICE is the Medtronic Labs platform for longitudinal management. The way it works, it's all offline first. So it addresses some of those connectivity issues by design. But the way it works is we train and equip community health workers or community health volunteers to go and screen patients for hypertension and diabetes. So community health workers and volunteers are equipped with all of the equipment required and the offline first application. They screen patients in the field and then the SPICE platform or the mobile application refers patients based on their data into the nearest health facility so that all of the health facilities are mapped out. The patient then goes to the nearest health facility where they enroll in the program. So we have workflows for doctors and health administrators as well as nurses for to do triage. So it's like a mini EMR combined with a community-based platform. And so the patient enrolls in the program, they get their personalized care plan based on their risk algorithm. So as they enter in their blood pressure and blood glucose data, as well as other information about their age and gender, we run clinical algorithms in the back to risk stratify the population. Then based on that risk algorithm, we then have community health workers that go back out and visit the patient based on their risk and their suggested cadence of follow-up rather than just randomly. So it's more targeted to the need and the risk rather than a community health worker going to a household every month. So we follow up the patient And then wraparound services include telecounseling. So we have a whole telecounseling platform as well. And then on the other side, the provider or the doctor can see all of that data longitudinal and follow up with the patient as well. So it's an end-to-end management platform. All of that data as well is linked up into the national reporting system. So in many countries where we work, it's an open source platform called DHIS2. So the Ministry of Health has all of the data that they need to make decisions. That's essentially what it does. In terms of data, the governments that we work with own all of the data. So we have agreements with the governments about data usage. So the governments own the data and we just are operating the program along alongside the governments. And then infrastructure wise, we right now run on the cloud. So we run AWS, but 
many governments are looking to have local servers as well. So in Kenya, we actually have all of the data in the local servers as well. So it's kind of case by case basis. But one thing we are looking at is, again, to your earlier question about the digital health ecosystem, we are seeing differences by country in terms of the level of infrastructure that exists and working with with whatever stage a various country is at. You mentioned that the government owns the data. What about the patients? So do they have access to the data? Do they just come up to the checkups in the community centers and know immediately about the measurements that were taken? So do they also have some sort of a longitudinal overview of their healthcare? The challenge with many in many of the countries where I work is that Typically, the patients that we're serving don't have access to smartphones. But that being said, we've been working with each country to make sure that we are going above and beyond in terms of patient consent and engagement so that patients know that we will be following up with them at their homes and calling them and that they can opt out at any time. So at the very first point of screening, we we put a lot of effort into training community health workers and having a written consent that patients have to sign before they engage in the program. And then at any point, they can opt out of the program via SMS or in person. So we put a lot of effort into that. And then, of course, when they go to the health facility, they can request to see their data. But because they don't have access to a computer or a phone, I don't think you can say that they have immediate access to their data. That's a challenge that will continue, I'm sure, and something that I know the Ministry of Health is really focused on in Kenya as well, making sure that patients own their data and not just in name only. What about the regulation of the technology that you're using? So your platform gathers data that serves for medical decision making and advice. And either in in the US, that would have to be HIPAA compliant. In Europe, it would have to be MDR and GDPR compliant. How would you the state of medical device and just healthcare data and digital health regulation in the markets that you're present in? in Africa? So the SPICE platform, we don't consider a medical device. So we are very cautious about having the platform give specific recommendations. So doctors and providers can always edit and override any sort of system generated suggestion. So right now, we aren't doing a lot of that clinical decision support in the purest form. However, in the future, we are looking at when our product roadmaps, roadmaps around really strengthening that clinical decision support. And in that case, we would treat that particular product as separate. So we would build that separately because it would be re- regulated differently than the rest of our product. So just in terms of a regulatory strategy from our end, we want to make sure that the vast majority of the SPICE platform remains a non regulated medical device and that if we do go in that direction, we're carving that out specifically. The platform is HIPAA compliant and we are GDPR compliant as well. We actually just launched in the United States a program in Camden, New Jersey a few months ago. So we are looking at all of the made regulations and keeping up to date. 
And what about the local innovation? Even though that, as you mentioned, the penetration with smartphones might not be super high in Africa, there's still a lot of uh, innovation happening. We just usually don't really know about it. Do you perhaps have any examples that you came across or any uh, solutions that you are looking at uh, to partner with in the future? Kenya, Rwanda, even Ghana are huge tech hubs. There's an amazing amount of talent and innovation that's happening locally on the ground, 100%. Yeah, there's so many, I can't name them all, but there's a lot of innovation happening in healthcare. So I know in Rwanda, there's some interesting examples funded by the Novartis Foundation, actually, for local entrepreneurs that are building some AI tools to detect different cancers. Um, So we've been talking to them about how can we plug that into our solutions in the long term. In Kenya, there's a lot of focus on emergency medicine. So there's some interesting startups that look at mapping all of the different ambulance systems and seeing if technology could augment the kind of broken emergency medical system that, that currently exists. So we had discussed some partnerships with them in the past. Of course, a famous example is M Pharma out of Ghana, where they are taking over large pharmacy chains and franchising them into like tech-enabled, more efficient pharmacies. That is an amazing venture-backed local organization as well that we've been talking to about, is there a way that we can partner? But there's so many examples. It's a really exciting time to be in the digital health and tech space in Africa. You mentioned already some of the things that kind of caught your attention most, but still, is there anything that you would like to add in that regard in terms of what inspired you in the last four years since all these programs have been running? I think the most inspiring thing is the commitment of all of the partners that we work with on the ground and the commitment from the communities themselves and really wanting to change the face of healthcare in their communities. So making sure that people actually have access and can pool resources. So the resilience of the communities that we're working with and the commitment of the partners to really come to a solution or a set of solutions that aren't replicating what other people have done, but actually building on the strengths of each organization. That's been inspiring. You know, it's hard because people have different interests and there's different pools of funding and global health and the whole development sector is messy. But on the ground, I think that's where you can really see the commitment. I think some of that conversation is lost in Geneva when you have high level meetings about big global goals or when you're in a donor conversation and everyone seems to be having different focuses and different interests. But on the ground, the people that are actually doing the work are so committed and the patients are committed to transforming their communities. How did COVID impact your programs? It's been four years since the running, but from 2020 to 2022, generally speaking, everything stopped. So I'm wondering, how did care look like in your case? We did have to shut down our programs during the immediate kind of early stages of COVID when no one knew what was happening. No one knew what 
COVID really was and how transmissible it was going to be. So we did have to shut down our programs for a while, but quickly thereafter, within a few months, we are back up and running, mostly because we work within public health systems and care had to go on for patients with non-communicable diseases while people were still getting COVID. Those most affected were people that had a pre-existing health condition like hypertension and diabetes. So it became a big priority for the government to make sure that we were still able to manage that cohort of patients. We had to get a little creative. So we did much more virtual care, much more checking in with patients in the community rather than having patients having to go to a facility. So it really kind of strengthened the virtual parts of our program and it strengthened the community based parts of our program in ways that I think have been positive in the long term. And I think the other thing coming out of COVID because of the recognition that all of these, like you can't look at communicable and non-communicable as completely separate. There, It's really changed the conversation, I think, around the importance of hypertension and diabetes and non-communicable diseases and making sure that those conditions are addressed as part of a broader UHC or health system strategy. So there has been a lot of momentum, I think, around non-communicable diseases since COVID. We mostly focused on Africa in this discussion. However, with Metatronic Labs, you're also present in other countries and other continents, the Philippines, Cambodia, India. How does the presence on all these different markets impact how you work in specific markets. So how do the learnings complement each other in the way that ideas are formed, in the way that care is delivered? So cross-pollination is one of the key success factors, I think, that makes Medtronic Labs a success. We have such a diverse team. We have people in India, in the United States, in Bhutan, in all of the countries where we work. And we're not siloed at all. So we work as a kind of unified team of leaders across all of these countries so that we're able to share learnings from all of the various countries. I think to give one quick example, our work in India and in other places in Asia started from a little bit of a different entry point. So we were looking at group-based care for diabetes and hypertension. So really leveraging a social support group as one of the main entry points and delivery points for kind of a comprehensive set of services for hypertension and diabetes. So we designed a full curriculum that was group-based for India. And as we were scaling in Kenya, we realized that there was a huge need to tap into some of these social support groups and networks that already existed. So we adapted the curriculum and the approach and some of the activities and interactive sessions that we had already designed for India to the Kenyan context and are now running a similar model in Kenya with some of the, I think we have 300 support groups now that we're running. Given that we mentioned earlier that in Kenya, the government owns all the data that you generate, what's the situation around that in the Asian market? So India, Philippines, Bhutan? I think it's all quite similar. We have the approach where when we're working in a country, we make sure that we're compliant with all of the national 
regulations around data ownership. So I think India has very stringent regulations. Most countries do. So we just make sure that when we're starting work in a country that before we collect any sort of patient data or work in a country that, you know, we're very buttoned up from a regulatory perspective. Of course, we put a lot of effort into our data privacy and security components of our platform. I think that's critical and important for anyone starting in this digital health space, especially when you're working with patient data. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree. It's just that I would, I guess the general perception is that in less developed markets, these things are less regulated when in fact, it's not exactly like that. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot of misperception out there around, oh, it's much easier to work in less developed countries because the regulations aren't there. But our perspective is that regardless of whether or not the regulations or the enforcement mechanisms are there, the principles should be the same across all of our work. So we take that really seriously and want to make sure that we are not treating a patient in India any different than we are in Kenya just because maybe their government regulations aren't as updated or as tech savvy. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast because it really, really helps other listeners interested in digital health find the show as well. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.